Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. We are live and then archived. Uh, also, you can listen to my show on Thursdays, which is an FM station in Albany, New York, which is live streamed and archived as well. The Social Workers, that's from uh, 9 to 10 Eastern on Thursday mornings. I have two guests coming up in this hour. My first guest, who's already here, is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, author, and he one of his books is Bad Acts and Guilty Minds. Maybe some of you have read that, but his new book is Why the Law is So Perverse. We're going to find out why the law is so perverse. I never thought about the law being perverse. I don't know if you did, but we'll find out from uh, Professor Katz why this is so. Our second guest, Lorne Rubis, he's author of The Character Triangle, Build Character, Have an Impact, and Inspire Others. And he is a president and CEO of Rizex, a global mobile technology solutions provider. Well, welcome to the show, Professor Katz. How are you this morning? Good, good. It's a pleasure to be here. With okay, you. your book is difficult. I mean, especially, you know, I'm a social worker, so you mm-hmm. really, and I have to add, you know, why the law is so perverse. I mean, it's a, it's a great book. I, it took me a while to get through it. I want you to, first of all, I want to know why you have, as a law professor, why you think the law is so perverse and why you wrote the book. Yeah, well, it's, it's about the sorts of things that uh, strike many people even after, or in particular after a relatively brief encounter as being kind of strange and puzzling about the law and why it should be that way. Uh, maybe the thing that most jumps out at people most to me is it, most jumps out at people is is the prevalence of loopholes. It's what often gets people most exercised. It's what gets newspapers most exercised. Um, other things that seem strange about the law is that there's an enormous amount that's prohibited that uh, people want to agree to, and it doesn't seem to hurt anyone, like you know, uh, surrogacy contracts, uh, organ sales, and so on. Um, another thing that people find very strange about the law is that it has this uh, either-or quality, even though reality is often, you know, shades of gray. Uh, it's either a contract or it isn't, or it's self-defense or it isn't, even though when we read fiction or when we just think about the real world, uh, it usually is, is not so clear-cut. And one of the mysteries and disturbing things for many people about the law is why it feels constrained to treat the world as though it were, were in either one category or another. So why uh, did you yeah. become a lawyer? 
why did I become a lawyer? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I can't say that these, these, these perversities that were, were something that, that um, uh, I had particularly noticed or had jumped out at me before I became a lawyer, but I don't know that they would have deterred me from becoming a lawyer. Um, they are just, I mean, in some ways they make the law particularly interesting. Um, and uh, I don't ultimately conclude, actually, this is, not a, this is not a tract of reform that says there are these terrible things about the law that we need to change. On the contrary, the book is, is a demonstration that these things that we find so disturbing are unfortunately things that we're kind of stuck with. They're inherent in law, even though it's not immediately obvious that, that law has to have these perversities. It's a way of telling people that uh, many of the things that they will find um, upsetting when they have encounters with the law um, are um, are unfortunately unavoidable and uh, not much sense even trying to reform them away. So how can the book, if one reads the book, the layperson, not lawyers, but mm-hmm. the, not professionals necessarily, but just a layperson reading your book, how can that... Well, this book will help them to navigate, because we all have contact. I mean, you, I don't think you can go through one's life with having some contact with lawyers, laws, courts, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so how will this book help them? I mean, you go through these, you talk about four fundamental features of our legal system, mm-hmm. and you take mm-hmm. us through those. How can it help, you know, in, in, in taking a look at each one of these fundamental features, how as yeah. we as lay people, how can that help us to, in our, you know, how can it help us in our daily um, encounters with the law. Well, uh, let me offer, let me answer that at sort of at, 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 at several different levels. First, okay. it's certainly not a book that I mean, it's it's not a how-to book. Uh, nothing wrong with how-to books, except it's not not the one I wrote. It's a book that you know will will give you some understanding of things that might trouble you, um, but uh, an end will I think uh, that's sort of maybe the only how-to aspect uh, make you feel less uneasy about things that you might otherwise have at least a mildly bad conscience about. Let me best illustration perhaps is uh, the sort of thing that uh, that you know strikes people as exploitation of loopholes. Uh, let me make that very concrete uh, so we get a sense of, of of what that what that problem is about. Um, the thing that you know we most often go to lawyers to is that you know there's something we would like to do and uh, either seems we can't do it or if we do it it's going to be subject to high taxes or to some other uh, heavy burdens that we want to avoid so uh, take for instance the case of um, someone visits from another country in the United States uh, he's got a visiting visa but idea actually what he wants to do is he wants to stay here forever which it seems he's not really entitled to do um, so he uh uh, he decides to seek out a lawyer and then ask, is there, is there anything you can do for me? Uh, and the lawyer says, uh, well, I mean, ordinarily, if you want to become an immigrant, you really need to return to your home country and maybe participate in an immigration to the United States lottery or line up with everyone else who wants at some point to be admitted to the United States, and maybe it'll happen in your lifetime, but that's generally what happens. Uh, and the man says, well, isn't there something else you can do for me? You, you sort of know the ins and outs of the law. And the man says, well, I notice you come from this uh, very oppressive third world country, and, uh, you know, there is this category of political asylum. And the man says, uh, yeah, what about that? And the lawyer asks him, well, uh, I mean, are you, are you in fact persecuted in your home country? And he says, no, I live on perfectly good terms with my government, never done anything to upset them. And the lawyer says to him, hmm, well, that's certainly a problem. On the other hand, that just means you haven't done anything so far to upset them. Uh, you know, if you were to make a declaration here that is protesting uh, the injustices back home, that might make you persona non grata, and then you're kind of in a different category. 
which of course is precisely what the man does, and now suddenly he's got, uh, he utilized uh, political asylum, as it were, as a way to circumnavigate the ordinary restrictions on, on immigration. And that's kind of kind of typifies the sort of thing that we, uh, as clients, hope a lawyer will do for us, and as spectators and readers of newspapers, we think is kind of outrageous. How can the lawyer do that? What's the point of laws if 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 people are able to just uh, you know get around them in that way? Um, so what, what what do I do for my readers? Uh, it's more concre- concretely, it's on the one hand I help them understand why this phenomenon, in fact can't be avoided, because how would you avoid it? Uh, you might, of course, say that, well, if he just strategically makes this sort of a declaration to get into this country, we're just going to send him back. The problem, of course, with sending him back is, even if he made this declaration just strategically, he's still going to be tossed in jail or worse, so we can't really send him back. Or you might think, well, if he just behaved that way to take advantage of our laws, fine, we'll, we won't send him back, we'll, we'll just punish him. But, of course, then what you're doing is, is, you know, enforcing the freedom of speech restrictions of that very dictator back home that we disapprove of, so you wouldn't want to do that either. So you're kind of stuck with this political asylum loophole, whether, you know, as long as you think that, that that sort of escape ought to be afforded to, you know, genuine political refugees, it's then unavoidable that others who use it strategically will also be able to take advantage of it. Um, a lesson one might take away from that is that... Uh, when you avail yourself of a loophole, uh, you're probably not doing anything particularly objectionable, even though it may feel that way. Um, if you're a lawyer giving advice of this sort, you don't need to feel particularly uneasy that you're circumventing a law that ought not to be circumvented. Um, and you, you understand why this sort of thing tends to arise. When you say circumvent a law, mm-hmm. I always thought about it as maybe interpret it's the, your interpretation of the law. Like the law is to be interpreted, and isn't this one kind of interpretation? And as you're talking, I'm thinking about a loophole, of course, that's in the news today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the tax laws. Um, yeah. They're always talking about loopholes. I mean, that's very relevant. I'd like to talk about that. Is that, you know, what mm-hmm. are they interpretations or are they circumventing? Yeah, I mean, there are... There are different, of course, different different ways in which you can try to get your way in the law, and in particular, get your way in the tax law. The one that um, people feel, uh, you know, not so uneasy about is when they're simply trying to uh, give a particular, argue for a particular interpretation of the law. Um, and uh, people who watch them do it may feel somewhat disturbed by that, but ultimately they figure, well, the court is going to choose the right interpretation and if they if if what they did conforms to that one then they will then they're all right what we get upset is there seem to be many instances in the law where something is not susceptible to interpretation it's quite clear cut that what the person is doing is okay but it still looks like an intolerable tax shelter and then we're outraged and apoplectic and think why can't this tax shelter this tax loophole be closed you're absolutely right that uh, Tax law is particularly notorious and particularly vexing in that regard, and newspapers, of course, love to run headlines about it. Um, but uh, let me show you why, why, in fact, while some of these tax loopholes are susceptible to closing, it's probably not really possible to do it. Um, and the person who avails himself of it shouldn't, doesn't really deserve as strong uh, a, a disapproval as the newspapers tend to mete out to him. Um, so, but I'll give you an example that's not strictly about tax law, but something that's closely related because many of the tax loopholes are kind of technical and hard to explain. But there's a very related, there's something that is very much like a tax loophole, and that's in the law of bankruptcy. So you have someone who 
uh, you know, uh, may owe, uh, you know, has, has made some unwise investments, and so now suddenly he owes, owes tens of millions of dollars. And, uh, but he's got many fewer assets than he's got debts. You know, let's say only $10 million worth in assets. Um, and under those circumstances, the law gives him the option of declaring bankruptcy. He then has to give up everything that he owns to pay off his creditors, and he gets a fresh start. So far, nothing objectionable. That's not a terrible, that's not even a loophole. That's just what we do for people who find themselves in very distressed financial circumstance, circumstances. Where the loophole comes in is this. Here's something that many people will do on the verge of, of bankruptcy. When you declare bankruptcy, you don't have to give up everything you own. There are some basics that you can retain. You know, we don't take the shirt off your back, so to speak. And the shirt on your back includes, you know, usually if you, in many states, if you, if you own your house, you get to or apartment, you get to keep it. And some other basic things you get to keep. Or if you have certain kind, a certain kind of uh, retirement pension, you get to keep it. Sometimes some states allow you to keep certain kinds of musical instruments because they're very personal and a bunch of stuff like that. So suppose on the verge of bankruptcy, he takes these $10 million, he buys himself a house, he buys himself some of these musical instruments, he quickly invests them, what, what remains in these retirement funds that are protected, and then he says to his creditors, all right, now get everything that's left, and uh, then, I'm, then I get my fresh start. This is called exemption planning or exemption strategizing, and it kind of looks like a loophole out of, out of um, you know, having to pay your creditors. Looks so that's extremely legal. frustrating. It's legal to do, uh, Professor, that's yeah. legal. That's what you're saying. That kind of legal. It's legal, and it's then you legal. might think it, the fact How that it's that legal. Apply to, like, I want to ask you something. I always like to apply this to things that are happening now sure. or in the news because, like, didn't American Airlines just declare bankruptcy? It might have. I haven't kept track of that. But yeah, I, I thought so. I mm-hmm. think so. I think it, was, it wasn't United. I think it's American Airlines. And I okay. wonder, do these kinds of loopholes, I mean, do like corporations do this? Well, that's individual that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, but, but absolutely the same, the same sort of thing will happen there, and the same sort of strategizing will occur when, when, when a corporation does that, sure. And when it's described in detail to outsiders, uh, you know, drives them mad. Uh, that's yeah, you could you just that's called an exemption. It's called an exemption, and you might think at first that it's it's. I mean, it seems kind of offensive or bothersome, and 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 companies will use it too. Uh, however, when you then ask yourself, well, all right, suppose we try to do away with that exemption. Uh, I mean, in particular, if somebody buys himself a ten million dollar home on the eve of declaring bankruptcy, you know, why why should he be able to keep a ten million dollar home when he's got all these creditors for much more money? Uh, maybe we can get around this loophole by saying he gets to keep, you know, if he gets to keep a $500,000 home or a $200,000 home, but not a $10 million home. So that looks like maybe that's a strategy for closing the loophole. The problem is, if you try to do that, he will probably find some other way to spend that money on the eve of bankruptcy. He might undergo cosmetic surgery. You know, that's not uh, reimbursed by, by, uh, by his medical plan. And, you know, what are you going to do about that? You can't strip him of whatever <laughs> benefits he got from that. For that matter, he can have gold teeth installed, and those two you wouldn't want to rip out. So ultimately, these exemptions, whether you officially allow them or not, there's always going to be some category of exemption that somebody's going to have available because there are certain things we just, just wouldn't be willing to do to anyone, regardless of how he got in that position, in order to find the assets within him to pay the creditors. And so as long as we is, have these that... These are loopholes. These are here to stay. We can't really... They're not going to disappear because if you... Exactly. You know, it's sort of like a, 
you do something about, well, you just described it, you know, you, you, uh, you think you put your whole, it's sort of like the kid putting his finger in the dike, you know, you put your, or put the hole exactly in the, like right? That. Yeah. But, you know, isn't there something in contemplation of something or in consideration? So, like, if you do it the night before and the judge can say, well, you know, it wasn't done, you know, you're considering going bankrupt, so you've bought a $10 million house, and there's like a time limit, or there's some kind of a time frame? Is, is, oh, sure. What's I mean, the those, term? Those... In contemplation or in consideration of what? I, I forgot what it is, but... No, absolutely. That's, that's, that's another uh, time-honored way in which the legislature tries to put a limit to this, and it, it, it certainly can sometimes help, but it's not that difficult for someone to just, um, you know, anticipate that and so he acts before you know if, if, if you can't do it within six months of bankruptcy so you protect yourself by by, by taking such action um, before that um, one a version of this that that many people engage in or some people at least do is uh, uh, a, you know an, an, an older person who uh, might be too wealthy to qualify for various kinds of government benefits turns over those those assets to his children and now he's sort of destitute and qualifies for those benefits um, there's probably a time limit there within which he, you know, if, if he did it just recently, it, um, it won't work. People very carefully plan around that and make sure that they convey the assets soon enough so that, so that this, 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 uh, they're not subject to that time limit. So, yeah, it's, it's true that there are certain things the government can try to do to make these loopholes um, uh, apparently a little less... Uh, uh, a little, apparently a little less wide, but most of the time it's not too difficult to plan around them. Not all of them, but many of them. All right, so those are the ta- we've, uh, now, so far we have only co- we've covered the loopholes. That's one of the, the yeah. uh, four fundamental features of sure. our legal system, which is good, I guess uh, here to stay. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to get rid of those, and maybe it's not necessary to. So we maybe we don't have to anyway. But okay, so let's take one of the other ones. You say the law. This is always interesting. Legal decisions are essentially made in an either-or fashion: guilty or not guilty. But right. real life things usually aren't black and white. Exactly. Um, and what's it, I mean, to, to, to make, it, uh, make it particularly concrete, I mean, take, take a lovely example that arises in the law of property. Uh, suppose someone, um, um, you know, uh, imagine someone, someone um, steals a car and um, then uh, sells it to someone else who has no idea that it's stolen. He manages to mask its origin sufficiently well. So now we've got the stolen property that's in the hands of an innocent, and the thief has the thief disappears from the scene. Sometime after this transaction, uh, the the original owner, you know, comes across the property, discovers that this car is now, you know, owned by someone else, and he wants it back. And what the law does across the world is it, you know, in all legal regimes, it <clears throat> it either hands the car back to its original owner or it lies or it allows this innocent new purchaser to keep the car. Now, in a way, that's kind of strange because there are these two innocent parties, both of whom were in essence victims of the thief, both the person for whom the car was taken and the person to whom it was sold, uh, pretending that you know, it wasn't stolen. And you might think with two innocent parties, we should, should kind of split the split the loss. We can't, of course, slice up the car, but we could say one of them gets to keep the car, but he has to pay some money, not the entire value of the car, but maybe half the value of the car, to the other person. It's not what the law does, and it's never what the law does. It never does things by halves. It usually chooses one of the two parties in the dispute as being the one who wins everything, and the other one has to bear the entire loss. Um, 
and it's you know it, it's it's law students in particular during the first semester when they encounter these cases sort of find it really strange because in in real life we generally don't seem to want to do things like that. Um, in another you know another situation in which this is 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 kind of dramatic is and, and in some ways more commonplace is just when there's you know let's take the question of whether two parties have had a contract they've had certain communications one of them made what sounds like an offer and another one made what sounded like an acceptance but maybe it's not entirely clear that they actually exchanged promises in the way they were supposed to to generate a contract and so they're about to take the matter to court and the reason they're about to take the matter to court is because, given the law that we've got, it's really kind of unclear which way it'll go. Now, what they will often do, realizing that there's no predicting how a judge will decide such a difficult case, they will, on the eve of trial, say, well, there's a 50% chance it'll come out as being a contract and a 50% chance it'll come out as not being one, so let's settle on, on half the damages that the party who's trying to enforce the contract wants. And that seems like a pretty fair outcome. What's peculiar is if they don't decide not to settle and if it goes to a judge the judge will usually not say well it's you know it's maybe it's a contract maybe it isn't i'll give you half the damages instead he'll either decide it clearly is and he won't admit to any doubt about the fact that it might be or he'll say it clearly is not and again he won't admit to any doubt about and acknowledge that this is really a difficult and in-between case so either he awards nothing or he awards the full amount and um the mystery is why doesn't he say what the parties might say to each other if they're settling? Um, you know, this is kind of an in-between case, and so in-between damages are appropriate. So what you're saying is that there really aren't, when you finally get to the judge in these kinds of cases, that you, this is an example of a contract um, or a non-contract, why aren't there, there really aren't any in-between verdicts? Where did all of these, you know, we've covered two of these mm-hmm. fundamental features of our legal system. Where did these come from? Where, what, you know, how do we get to this point? And is it, well, what, how do we get, right. you know, <clears throat> well, I mean, the origin of this kind of thinking in them, the law? They, I'm sorry, go ahead. What is the origin of this kind of thinking in the law, or this kind of way of executing the uh, the legal system, I guess? I don't know if that's exactly how to say it, right. but where did this all come from, you know? Well, when one at first glance encounters one particular instance of these, a particularly disturbing kind of loophole or an instance like, you know, like this rule that I described to you where the, it's either the original owner that gets the car or it's the innocent buyer that gets the car. And each, when one looks at these cases individually, one gets the impression, well, it must be sort of, there must be something peculiar about the history of this doctrine that would account for it. And of course, you can trace out the history and you, you'll, you know, and there's usually a story to tell. And if one looks at, therefore, at these things, piece by piece, one gets the impression these are just kind of, you know, accidents of history, strange things that happen in law and that one ends up with, and therefore one should maybe try to reform them and not be stuck with what, what we have to end up because of the particular way in which, in which the history evolved. What turns out to be the case if one looks at them in large number and side by side and notices how prevalent and how ubiquitous they are is that they're, in, in fact, probably, or in fact they are, pretty much unavoidable. Um, they're a little like trying to, I mean, you, you can try to limit or eliminate a, a particular example of it in a div- given context, but usually the result will be it's, it'll be like moving a bump under a rug. It'll just reappear elsewhere. Uh, you know, Garrison Keeler has this nice saying on the Prairie Home Companion about all the, this reference to all the children of Lake Wobegon who are above average. 
And so we all chuckle understanding that it can't be the case that everybody's above average just as a matter of logic. That turns out to be true about most of these difficulties with law, that when you pursue them further and in any depth, and that's what I try to do in, in the book, trying to eliminate them would be a little like trying to make everyone above average. It just can't be done as a matter of, of logic. Well, I'm trying to think of an example as you're, as you're describing mm-hmm. this, but, uh, you know, it, well, the, the, the concept I, think, of, I want to ask you about this because we only have five yeah. minutes left, but it's related sure. to, to what you're saying. Like the, the concept, for instance, that's kind of evolved in, let's say, in divorce proceedings like, of mediation. Like you don't mm-hmm. go to a lawyer because it is going to be either or. One of you is going to get the kids and the other one's not. But if you go to a mediator, there may be something. It isn't black and white. There's, you know, you can... There's, there's the opportunity to, to, to be more flexible to, as you described, it's not an, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's an in-between verdict. Is that <clears throat> well, um, there it turns out that in, to some extent the in-between nature of, of verdicts there is a little deceptive. When you look more closely, even at the mediation process, um, it will turn out that r- the thing that we find most upsetting about this, the, the either-or, decision-making of the judge is that sometimes, you know, small changes in the facts can make a tremendous difference about how we think about something. And that's particularly obvious in the law, but when we, even when we look at processes that seem to be keyed to generating compromise and in-between verdicts, when we look at them more closely with the help of insights that one gains by thinking about law, they too turn out to be much more either-or than we realize. The outcome of a mediation process, when we look at a given instance of mediation carefully, will turn out to be vastly affected by very small aspects of the case that, you know, might slightly favor one or the other party. It's a little less obvious that mediation is actually almost as either or as as the law, but in fact it is because it just turns out that decision-making among parties in dispute inevitably is very sensitive, bizarrely sensitive, to small differences in the nature of the arguments and the nature of the situation in which they find themselves and the nature of the claims they're able to make. So the either-or character of law, actually, once, once one looks out for it, is something that's characteristic of most decision-making, especially decision-making that involves at least some elements of, of moral questions, which will be the case even when there's a mediator in a family law situation. I don't have an example at my fingertips, but really what, what eventually emerges is that all the things that seem to us most disturbing about the law, we can find outside of the law in, uh, in everyday disputes. It, they just don't leap out as, at us as much. Uh, because the process isn't so formal, and so we can't see it so clearly. But if one makes a close study of the mediation process, it too turns out to be a very either-or process. And just on the surface, it looks like it's it's ready to embrace the in-between. Well, then I guess what the, the uh, we have a couple minutes left. What do we want to leave our listeners with? Just um, well, besides, let's start with buying your book. You can get it on Amazon.com. Why the law is so perverse. Uh, Professor Leo Katz from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and you can buy it at bookstores everywhere as well. And I just a website. Do we have a website we can go to? Um, yes, I think if they just uh, t- type in the title of the book, www or or, or Facebook, uh, why the law is so perverse. I think they'll 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 hit it. 
Okay. So what do, what do we want to leave everybody with? You know, well, mostly to get to uh, when 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 a newspaper reports uh, on these terrible attacks loopholes, and we then have the sense we better immediately notify our congressmen and do something about it. Uh, don't. Uh, you're not going to eliminate tax loopholes, and you're not going to eliminate related loopholes elsewhere, and many other things that disturb you. Um, and that the newspapers describe as the stuff that calls for instant reform, uh, don't expect anything like that soon. It probably cannot be done. Is that a depression? I know, a message of, <laughs> maybe too much of a down message, at least for a morning. Yeah. Let's wait, so what, what's the up message? What's the up message that we can get from the book? Maybe, maybe, well, maybe, maybe I should phrase it in terms of the serenity prayer, you know. Yeah. Don't, try to, don't try, to change, try to change those things of the law that can't be changed and that will only fill you with frustration if you try to. <laughs> But I think that, you know, when you read a book like yours, you, you get, if you have an understanding of, of how it operates, mm-hmm. I think you become less frustrated. Because when you don't really have any knowledge about it, or you're just, you know, then you're kind of, you feel, I think you're more frustrated, but, you know, you sort of have, um, I think understanding helps to, to become less frustrated and angry, maybe, and even angry. Right, right, right. And there's maybe, maybe then there's, there's a following, a milder, upbeat message, which is, um, you know, people tend to think of law as being uh, sort of very uh, arid and dry and fixed and unexciting. Um, you know, one of the messages I hope to carry out with the book, other books presumably carry it too, that there's, there is in fact a tremendous intellectual excitement to be gotten in just thinking about how law works. It sometimes it has, and then one is, uh, one is, one is uh, there are all sorts of surprises once one focuses on it more closely to be had. All right. Well, it was great talking to you this morning, and uh, I learned a lot, and I'm sure my listeners did as well, why the law is so perverse. Leo Katz, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great really to have appreciate you. appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, coming up next is the author of The Character Triangle. And uh, that is Lauren Rubis. So we'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
we're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time, live on Voice America and archived and streaming as well. Uh, joining me now is my second guest, Lauren Rubis. He's author of The Character Triangle, Build Character, Have an Impact, and Inspire Others. He's president and CEO of RiseX, a global mobile technology solutions provider, and he has had executive leadership positions with small companies, big companies, and even some of those Fortune 500 companies. So job stress and the economy, as we all know, are affecting everyone these days. The question is, or the question that Lauren asks, is it possible to complete each day with a personal sense of reward and contribution, regardless of what is happening around us? I don't know about that. Can we still succeed against the odds of things out of our control? Those are some of the questions we're going to be talking about today or answering. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Lauren. Thank you, Catherine. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you. Uh, you know, yeah, there's so much happen, and you know, I think a lot of people do feel out of control, and they, we are, when we feel out of control, we tend to blame it on everybody else. It's not our fault. It's the economy. It's, uh, it's Wall Street. It's whatever it is, but it's not my fault. So, you say, well, I, I'm going to let you, I'll give you a chance to, <laughs> to talk. In your book, The Character Triangle, build character, have an impact, and inspire others, which really says we need to take control over our own lives and not blame everybody else? You know, I, I really do. And uh, I talk about um, three, three values, uh, accountability, respect, and abundance. And, and I talk about the importance of them individually, but I think they become more powerful as a system. But let me respond to the first issue. I think... Uh, all those things are happening around us. It's absolutely, absolutely true. And, I, and, and you know, the economy is obviously difficult, and uh, companies and organizations are rapidly changing. Their business models are changing. So many things that are happening for most people out of our direct and immediate control. But what we do have control of is how we think and act. And I think there's, there's more power to, uh, to that than sometimes I think that um, we give credit to. And so... In my book, I really try to appeal to people to think about defining success more in their own terms rather than to allow us to be completely buffeted by all those things around us. So how do we do that? How do we define success in our own terms, given our state right now, state of the economy, state of the world? Uh, how do we do that? From well, the, yeah. One of the things that I observed around people that I defined as, uh, as success, and I broadened the definition of success a little bit, and I think that's important because I think all the more structured and material elements of success are important, things like you know compensation, obviously, and job level, and, and, uh, and some of those other more uh, definitive kind of re- result measures. But I broadened it to think about... Uh, the ability for people to uh, build their character, have an impact, and inspire others. And I think that regardless of the environment, my observation is that there are people that, that come from my, that mindset, and they can have that kind of an impact and, and bring value into the environment that they're in. And so I encourage people to think about coming into their, into their workspace, which is naturally obviously part of their life space, with that perspective and to come from the point of view of, you know, I'm accountable for my situation and I can take action to make it different. So uh, the character triangle, and I'm repeating it again, I have to be accountable, uh, 
accountability, respect, and abundance. Those are the three characteristics of the character triangle. But I want to backtrack for one second. Character, you talk about, you said certain people can come into the workspace and, and, and have character and make a difference and an impact. Is character, do you think, do we learn character or is it innate? Are some people just born with good character or can we... Or, or bad character, and, uh, and, and if that's the case, is, is it something that's, that's, uh, you can't change, or can we actually learn to develop good character? You know, I, I really strongly believe that our character can be developed. And, um, and you know, my, we're, we're so influenced by, by uh, learning from other people around us, from observing the behavior of others. And, um, and when we're in an environment and we're given that uh, perspective around how to behave or respond to certain kind of situations, then it's, a, it's very much a learning opportunity. And I think that, um, that we're constantly uh, being challenged and, uh, uh, to evolve and, and grow our character. And, and I, so I have a very optimistic view in, uh, around that, and I believe that if we can uh, observe our own behavior, we can be more attuned to how we're to how we're thinking and acting, then we can constantly work and practice on developing our character, and uh, and I think that's a very kind of uh, encouraging and optimistic uh, way of of working in the world. Well, if we take that premise, um, Lauren, and I, I think I agree with you, um, then. And we're in a pretty bad state. I think we're in a state where I mean we need to really do something about it. We have to read your book, number one. But <laughs> <laughs> besides that, we have to. I mean, if you think about it, and I always get, I very often get back to this on my show. I mean, we're a nation. Uh, we're a bloated society, and I in every way, physically, financially. We, I mean, we spend more than we have. We eat more than we should. Take those two things. Uh, you know, we're bankrupting our, our communities and our cities because of that. Um, and you know, I think about the the obesity problem and the the weight problem. No one, you know, it's it's somebody else's fault. You know, we're we, you know, it's it's the and we, that's a whole other topic. But put that into you know. I, I agree with you. I think yes. it's so seductive to just want to blame it. And at some level, there's a certain humanness with it. And you know, and I, by the way, I'm not selling perfection. That is for sure. But there's a, there's a certain understandable kind of a human kind of uh, frailty that comes with that. But it is such a waste. And, and, I come, and, and my belief is that, that much of that blame starts with self-blame. You know, it's, you know, we beat ourselves up and we're so... And, and I think that is as much wasted energy as blaming all these other kind of environmental things around it. Yeah, you know, can things be better with bank reform? Certainly. Can, you know, the healthcare system improve? Certainly. All those things at a macro level, so many of those things at a very large macro level are a long ways from our direct control, but what we can control are things that how we think and what we do. And I think if we start with that premise and say, you know what, I'm not satisfied with my particular situation. I'm going to work from the premise that I'm going to accept that it's not satisfactory. And my mindset is to accept that. And now I'm going to start to take some step towards making it different. And I ask the questions, what, what can I do about it and how can I do about it? It starts to change the, the, the level of conversation, the self-conversation you have in the conversation with, with others. Can you, yeah, I agree with you. Can you give us examples? You know, listen, give us examples of people who have done that. I know in your book you talk about Coach John Wooden, um, who is an, 
this, the character Hall of Fame. Um, he was a basketball coach. Right. And lived to be, what, you say, 99 years old. And uh, this was a man who had good character. Uh, talk about him, because he's a good example of what yeah, you've well, been describing. I think in a lot of cases that, that he always encouraged, you know, as great as his basketball teams were, and, and um, you know, he's legendary around UCLA winning all those national uh, college championships. He ultimately encouraged people to compete against themselves. I mean, his 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 one of his uh, one of his uh, treatises was, you know, the most important person to work on, the most important person to get better, is yourself. Let's not worry so much about the competition. Obviously, we're going to have good plays and we're going to have good strategy and we're going to have skills. But each one of you compete against yourself. Make yourself as the as the best as you can be. And um, you know, I I often see when you can change the conversation around, going back to this issue of accountability, when you change the conversation, when you and I, Catherine, if we come to a, to meet each other on, a, on an issue, and you and I both are coming from the perspective of what each of us can do about it first, and how we can do uh, to make the situation uh, uh, work better for both of us, it starts to change the dynamic of the conversation. I see that at work all the time. You know, where, for example, a manager will come in and meet with um, a, a team member or somebody working for them, and the perspective of accountability is that they're going to make sure that they hold them accountable. So the first conversation comes from the perspective of what can you do to make things better. But my my argument is what if that manager came to that discussion from the point of view of saying, you know, the situation is not acceptable. Let me talk about what and how I can contribute to that situation, and I'm going to ask the same thing from the other person. And the tenor of the conversation uh, be, uh, changes. I see this all the time. Lauren, can you give us an example? Like, we, I mean, because you've been consulting with a lot of these in different size companies, as you say, from Fortune 500 to mid-sized to small companies. Yep. What's the worst situation that you've encountered that you've been able to turn around using this, this, uh, this schema or schematic uh, paradigm, I guess, um, that, you know, you've Whatever, you know, in, in any of the companies that you've, you've been working with? Well, you know, I have one, one example where, and, and I think they're, they're, uh, in every situation, I think these things have, have uh, sort of this mindset of, of um, taking more control of our situation has, has been helpful. But I, I know one situation where it was very difficult. The, the business model was dramatically changing. I was the chief operating officer of a company that was primarily a catalog company, and we sold a lot of technology through catalogs. And the world was changing to a uh, internet-based uh, uh, sort of telephony-based model, and the world of catalogs was was becoming um, uh, no longer uh, the right business model to approach it. And it was so easy to to start to get caught in this, gosh, poor us, you know, we try so hard and and we're working so hard. But the mindset that we began to bring to the to the to the starting with the executive team right through is that. You know what action can we take here? How, what, and how can each of us do? And um, and we had an opportunity to go in a very large, uh, very large B two B contract that was a very high profile contract. And people said that, you know, we can't do this. We don't have the systems and structures in place to do it. But you know, we just took this position. We're going to find a way. We're going to we're going to we're going to ask ourselves what and how we can do about it. And we ended up. We ended up winning, and we ended up winning this opportunity that fundamentally changed the, the, our, 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 our foundation for our business model going forward. But I see this all the time at a very much an individual level. You get some people that, you know, if you ask them what's, you know, where they are, they're unhappy about it, and then they're, they talk about they. There's some magical they in the organization. 
you know, of course, the further I got up in the organization, I realized that I was the they. You're the they. <laughs> and, you know, I just realized, hey, I can't do this all myself. I have responsibility. I have, I have responsibility. So ultimately, you know, I'm responsible to CEO of the corporation to make things better, to make the environment better, to make the business model, uh, model better. But, boy, does it make a difference when everybody else in the organization is also asking what and how they can do. And it just makes you so much more in control of your environment. And I think from a from a psychological perspective, I'm a social worker. I don't think that sometimes uh, people realize the that energy. You only have so much energy, and if you're taking that energy to blame other people or to you know to look at at the they at somebody else, you could be using that energy in a positive way and become successful, just as you described. Uh, you know, personally, I went through a divorce 20 years ago. And kind of, not knowing it, but used your character model, I think, to some degree. Uh, you know, one of my boys was like, oh, I, you know, you're getting divorced. This is, you know, I'm, I'm the only one in the kid in the class whose parents are divorced. This is just, okay, you need to vent, you need to get it out. But at some point I said, okay, we're getting divorced. That's the way it is. How can we turn this around so it's going to, so you'll become stronger, so you'll learn from it, so you'll, so there'll be some positive stuff that comes Exactly. Out you know, I got a note from an executive who read my book the other day, and, um, and this person said, you know, I want to thank you for just helping me reflect on the idea of, of forgiveness a little bit. I've been harboring all this anger and frustration that a previous organization was at, what I was at. I didn't think that they treated me right. I spent so much energy on that. And I've kind of let go of that, and um, I'm kind of, I'm, you know, I'm working from a different spot of going forward and putting my energy forward. Like you say, we've only got cer- certain amount of energy, and that's why, for example, I believe that this is such important as a system, and because I think accountability is so important individually. But when you connect it to respect, then you start to go, uh, you know, what if I start to blame and I start to attack other people? Then I, what I'm starting to, I'm even making the situation worse because I'm now beginning to diminish others and, and putting my energy that way. And it's not really helping anything. And so, but when the reverse happens, when I start to think, you know, all those people around me are really their tremendous resources for me to build on. If I listen and I make myself present with those, with those, with those people and I embrace them that way, gosh, there's so many people there to help me move to another level. And how do I think those people as sort of part of my ecosystem of, 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 of building character and, and, and having an impact and inspiring others? And all of a sudden, the people around you become more of this, this resource to, to uh, pull on. And at, at some level, that can sound enormously naive, but I deeply believe in it. I think one of the things is, and I know you are a consultant for businesses, I don't know whether you go into uh, universities or high schools, but I think this kind of, uh, you know, exactly what you're talking about in your book needs to be brought into the high schools because I think a lot of these, um, at least this has been my view of things from a social work perspective, that a lot of the parents in their 40s and have kids in middle school and high school, when things go wrong, the first thing that they do, and not that you, you know, systems need to be changed, as you said, on the macro level, blame the teacher, blame the principal, blame everybody else without taking a look at, okay, what's your kid doing? You know, I'm I completely to, agree. Yeah. You know, I started my, my whole career as a, as, a, as a teacher, a middle school teacher, and some of the, you know, it was a great time of my life, and it was actually a foundation for, because, you know, I, I think middle school kids, as you know, are, are, um, are, are you know, have, have got an, all this uh, pent-up kind of energy that gets, you know, it, it, it gets articulated in a variety of ways. It can be more or less functional. <laughs> 
And, but I think that they're the perfect group to kind of embrace these principles because I, I, I think um, if it's genuine and it's deeply caring, I think they, they rally around that kind of environment. But I think it's a responsibility of leaders to bring and, and, and confront um, the, the, our school system and the people within it around these particular behaviors. The expectation should be around being accountable, being respectful, and being abundant. And particularly with things like social media now where, you know, some of the cruelty and some of the, uh, uh, some of the attacking of people and that kind of behavior. And if we tacitly approve that, you know, what are we doing? How are we developing uh, this sort of next group of next generation? And, but we have to start with ourselves. So what do we do about that? I'm glad you brought up social media, uh, Lauren, because social media does present a problem because of the anonymity. You talk, especially accountability, which I see, that, you know, just kind of staring me in the face. Accountability, how do you make one, how does one become accountable, especially with maybe the younger kids uh, when you're on the Internet? I mean, it's, it's a... I know it because yeah. it, uh, and I, well, you know the interesting thing is that it happens in the workplace as well. I mean, I mean, uh, and I've and and oftentimes we try to talk in our organization around uh, emails. It's so easy. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance. Maybe maybe your listeners have had a chance to watch a tra- trail of emails sometimes just deteriorate, and uh, and so the dialogue rather than really being uh, um, an issue of dialogue, it becomes an issue of using sort of text to blame or to uh, attack other people. So one of the principles is that um, is that to start to understand that everything is a process and that the way to move forward is to look at attacking a process, not not each other. And and so, but the the to back up a step further, I think we have to. It's so easy to assume that we understand these values. I mean, if you ask more people on the street, do you understand accountability and respect and, and abundance? Most people would probably nod their head and say, but it's, I think it's a much deeper understanding and observation. And then, frankly, it takes practice. It has to be, you have to think about it as a skill, and you have to practice it. And that's why I use the analogy of a playbook, because, I mean, no one would go into a sports environment or into a musical uh, environment and not practice and practice, and yet... These skills, which are so important to our personal development, I don't know how much we consciously think about them as processes and then practice the heck out of them. I don't think we do either. I think we do a lot of talking about it, maybe a lot of with a you know yak yak, and you know. Uh, but what, what we actually practice? No, I don't think that we do that. I, I, I otherwise, I don't think we'd be in the position we are perhaps today. Yeah, and you <laughs> know, I think it comes back to then being present enough to observe what's going on. Can we step back and say, you know, you know? Uh, and so it's a, it's really so much small stuff that happens on a on a daily basis. You know, it's you know I, I travel a lot, and and um, and you know one of the just small just a small thing, and and. Uh, you know, I just made a point, for example, of helping people bring down their luggage off the top rack of um, uh, in in the airplane. I mean, people struggle with that. And, and I'm one and, of those people. I'm five feet tall. So where <laughs> are you? Where have you been? I <laughs> but you know, in some ways, I don't think people are being uh, mean or insensitive. I just think that they're just almost numb. Uh, they're just in. They're not present. Just to. And if we get in, and so we have to live, you know, raise this level of observation and say, you know, how am I thinking and how am I acting? And is this really the way? Is this my formula? Is this my framework? Uh, is this, is this how I really want to behave in these particular environments? And I need, and I think we need some guide, guidelines for that. And I think the character triangle is not intending to be, com- you know, completely, uh, to cover all angles, but I think, 
when you, if we can just do those three things, if we can practice being self-accountable, self-respectful, and self-abundant, and then apply that to others, I, I just think it's incredibly powerful. But I, I think they're, imp- they're powerful just in their own right. But when they come together and you start to join the dots, then I think it, it, it really does. You start to realize, okay, I'm having an impact here. And that, by its nature, builds your character and, and then inspires other people to well, do the same. Well, it also builds your self-esteem. As you begin to do that, you feel better about yourself. It just happens. You know, the external begins to change the internal, I think, as you begin to practice those kinds of behaviors, like you say. The big excuse is I'm under a lot of stress. I really can't do it. You know, I just have to take care of myself. I have to go to work. I have to do the basic stuff I need to do with my family. Things are, you know, I, I'm very stressed yep. out, so I, I, I don't have time to... So, yeah. yeah, I agree. So let's say let's just agree and say we are we're stressed out. And but you know, and and I don't want to oversimplify the response to it. But there's so much data uh, behind uh, generosity and giving. It's almost you know, you know, it, it's you know if you if you talk to spiritual leaders from you know many believe that you know mercy precludes faith, for example. And and in in this context, if we just give, if we're more generous of ourselves. I think it uh, counterintuitively, we start to get more back. We start to there's as you say this and this this goodwill comes, but only if we do it without ex- expecting any reciprocation. Because I think if you go into that with the mindset, well, I'll do this if you do that, then everything becomes sort of a win lose negotiations, and I think it becomes shallow and disingenuous. But if we just give, you know, just do it. It is amazing. And it doesn't have to be big. I mean, it's just more, you know, in, in, in my environment around the things that I can influence as CEO, for example, this may sound, again, these are all data points that come up together and collectively are more important. For example, I encourage people just to acknowledge each other. So we have this simple program where people can write an, a card that's called an ACE, where if you see someone doing something that is just really helpful, that they can send a note to another person and say, thank you, I saw you doing this. I can't tell you how much it helped me and helped others. I appreciate it. And they do it collegially. And so, you know, we've, we've shared thousands of those notes amongst each other, and I can't tell you how much goodwill we've built just by doing that. But it can't be phony. It can't be a program. It's got to be a genuine feeling of this sense of acknowledgement and, and giving. Yeah, it's that positive reinforcement, and it works. It really does work. Um, a few minutes left, so I want to ask you, like, the response that you're getting from your book. Um, well, the, the, uh, it's interesting. It kind of comes in sort of like a, a layers. I think at one level, um, the, the, um, when people look at it and they go, the character trunk is kind of interesting, and they kind of look at the three, um, the three values and they go, well, you know, I think I know something about those, but I think the surprising thing happens when they start to dig in a little bit, and then to um, and and if they start to uh, self-reflect on some of the questions that I ask at the end and do some of the plays, then I've gotten a tremendous response. The the wonderful thing for me, uh, Catherine, is that I have my own supportive uh, environment to to to, uh, to apply this in, and and that being the CEO of 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 Rizix, I get an opportunity because I've got support from our chairman and and our executive team to continue to build and apply this. And we're sure not perfect, and you know we're never going to be. And we you know we we have to work at this every day, including me. But I start to see the um, 
the way it starts to change the tone of the um, of the conversation. And frankly, I think it ends up articulating itself in in business results. That's the interesting trick here: is that will the will the business and leadership community understand that working this way is actually more tough-minded, more disciplined, and more empirically driven for driving you know hard-nosed business results than you know. Uh, you know, following into some of the old traps of blame uh, and uh, and all the other kind of stuff that I think sometimes gets hit, hidden and masked in uh, in organizations. And I think this is a powerful way to live and work. And uh, you know, obviously, I feel very passionate about this. I wish that everybody in the whole damn world would think and work this way. I think we wouldn't be perfect, but I think we could move the ball down down the uh, down the field further, all for 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 for, for greater success for all of us. Well, I think one of the things you have a lot of credibility because you are CEO of a major company. So, uh, and the other thing is, I think because uh, when one reads the book, and you can go to the appendix because you also have very specific kinds of you know tools in which to begin to be able to do this. Um, and you, uh, it's the at the end of the book, which I think is always very helpful, it makes it very specific and very practical. Yeah, Catherine, there's a tool there called STP, Situation Target Proposal. You know, I have a, a, a former colleague who ended up uh, running a, a, a number of divisions for a major, major pharmaceutical company. And through his career, because uh, this tool's been around for, I don't know, 25, 30 years at least, <laughs> maybe maybe longer, he had everybody in his organization take that simple tool. And, and the nature of dialogue changes because most people argue over proposals. You know, so that's the P and the STP proposals. When the real issue is getting agreement on the target and the situation, if you can get agreement on the target and situation and people dedicate themselves to listening using that particular paradigm, that framework, I guarantee you they read nothing else in the book and practice that. I, I, it's almost like I guarantee you, you will have, you will say, thank you. That really has helped clarify my ability to have dialogue with other people. And, and I just have so much confidence in some of those kind of tools. But, but, you know, you have to learn them and practice them and use them and, and get better at them. And when you, you know, take a lot of those practical tools and apply them together and do a little bit more every day, pretty soon you're living in the triangle. And, and I think you're having an impact building character and inspiring the hell out of others. Great. And then you've done it. I'm going to mention the book one more time. We have to say goodbye. The Character Triangle. Build character, have an impact, and inspire others, which is what we've been talking about today with author Lauren Rubis. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Hey, thanks a lot, Catherine. Bye Great for talking now. to you. You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to World Talk Radio, uh, voiceamericavariety.com. Hope you had a good morning. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.